I never call it a lost cause. You know, when I was in the problem solvers, I always explained it to my voters at home that I was trying to light a candle rather than curse the darkness. Hey, it's Johanna Masca. This week on Press Advance, we're talking about the speakerless House of Representatives. As of the publication of this episode, the Republicans have thus far failed to nominate a Speaker of the House who can get the needed support from their caucus. And the stakes couldn't be higher. A war has broken out in the Middle East. A war continues in Europe. So one would think that House Republicans could find their way through their differences and nominate a speaker. But we are still waiting. By happenstance on Friday night, I ended up flying on the last United flight out of Washington, D.C., home to Los Angeles. And that's where I found most of Los Angeles's congressional delegation and Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries. So I went up to visit with them. I had been enthused about Hakeem Jeffries' Washington Post op-ed calling for bipartisan governance last week on News Nation, and I wanted to ask what it would take to get us there. The answer was pretty simple. The Democrats will back a Republican who cares about governing and bring up legislation the majority of Americans support. Hakeem Jeffries is not asking the Republicans to support him. They're just saying, give us a Republican who cares about governing, who will actually bring up legislation that Americans want. (laughs) I said, do we have the names of Republicans? And sadly, as of Friday night, no Republicans had come to Hakeem Jeffries to ask for his support. I said, could we float names? Adam Schiff, who's my congressman, who many of you know, was also there, and he rightly pointed out that if Democrats started floating Republicans' names, most likely those Republicans would get a challenger from the right. It just seems so backwards. I have to tell you, most of you think you know Adam Schiff, and, you know, he is my congressman. I just want to say he could not have been nicer on this flight. He has 1K status on United, which means he could probably sit anywhere. And he chose a middle seat in economy to sit on for this five-and-a-half-hour flight. It reminded me so much of my Republican dad, who often waits for every single person to get off the plane before he would get off the plane. You know, there are nice people there are kind people in this Congress. Sometimes it seems like people can just become a caricature of themselves, but they are actually kind and they care about governing. There are Republicans who care about governing. So I had to try to figure out how did we get here? So I talked to Connor Lamb. Connor Lamb was a congressman from Pennsylvania who won in a swing district. He voted against Nancy Pelosi for the speakership and faced pressure from Democrats. We talk about the problems of Washington and whether there's a chance we can change it with a bipartisan Congress. Connor Lamb, I am so thrilled to talk with you today because with all of the House chaos, I really wanted to check in with someone who has been there, who has seen some of this up close and can get me lay of the land. Here we are, the Democrats. We have 212 members who are working with Hakeem Jeffries, <laughs> voting every single time for Hakeem Jeffries. Is there a chance, either Hakeem Jeffries or a Republican, that we can 
agree on would be able to take control of this speaker race so that we could have a functional government. And Hakeem said, that is exactly what I've been wanting to do. Uh, And he said, it's not me. It doesn't need to be me. It can be a Republican who just cares about governing for the people. But yet on Friday night, when I talked to him, not a single Republican had come to him to formalize talks about what that would look like. Connor, can you please help me make sense of any of this? Yeah, well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you have an idea of who the voters are that these Republican members need to support them to come back to the House. And so, you know, I have found being back out here in Pittsburgh like an average citizen again, when people ask me about this stuff, they jump straight to, well, why don't these... Republicans just do the right thing. Why don't they team up with Hakeem, like you said, and come up with a way? And it seems like common sense that that's what they should do. It seems also to me like there's no chance they would come back to Congress if they do that. And the the easiest example to look to is that I think we had 10 Republicans vote for Trump's second impeachment in the House immediately after January 6th. And two of those 10 came back to Congress. Eight of them were primaried and defeated. And if you recall, Trump took a personal interest and so did his sons and so does his whole network in in counting up on on X or Truth Social or whatever it was, how many of them they ticked off one by one that they defeated. So I think that the Republican side is more tribal than ours in some ways, at least as it relates to sort of running the federal government. And they wouldn't they wouldn't accept it. So I kind of wish that there were a few of these guys, you only need five, who would just say, you know what, it's not worth coming back under those conditions anyway. Let's just set a good example and govern for the next year and a half. But you know, they they probably tell themselves that if they stay in advance, they can do greater good in the long run. Well, and that's what we were talking about. 18 vulnerable, very vulnerable House Republicans in Biden districts. Is there any way any of them would come across? And it was like, you know, there's no way we wouldn't run against them, wouldn't run a challenger against them. There's very likely the scenario where they get primaried from the right if they do cooperate. Now, that probably means that their House seat is gone to a Democrat, to a moderate Democrat, most likely, if that's the scenario. But there are good people in Congress. I mean, you know them. There are good Republicans you've worked with. And that's what made me sad is when we can't even talk about who those are, who are the Republicans who you worked with, who you thought they're good people in the House? Uh, the one I was closest to was Brian Fitzpatrick from the other side of my state, Pennsylvania. He represents Bucks County in some adjacent areas outside of Philly. He gets the support of of labor unions, the AFL-CIO, I think even some of the teachers. He's pretty liberal on some economic issues, uh, more conservative on social issues. Uh, FBI agent by background. I was a federal prosecutor. We just had a, a lot in common. Um, but he's a good example. He didn't vote for Trump's second impeachment. He he argued that there should have been a censure, but not an impeachment. And he came back to Congress. You know, what I thought they should have done was make it about substance and accomplishment rather than personalities, by which I mean, if you could get five of the moderate Republicans together and say, basically, look, here are the six. I mean, the House is not going to do anything really in the next year and a half. Everyone in Washington knows that, you know, Biden accomplished what he was going to do in his first two years. And now everyone's going to fight with each other until the next presidential election. So you could pretty easily chart out the next six months and say, hey, for the next six months, we'll give Hakeem Jeffries or some neutral figure our vote for speaker in exchange for these six bills. And it would probably be aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, keeping the government open at existing funding levels or maybe slightly less if you want to argue that you did something conservative on fiscal policy. 
And then each of them throws in one or two really specific priorities for their district. You know, then if Fitz or, you know, one of the other moderate R's are doing a press conference to explain why they, you know, voted against Jim Jordan and went with someone else, it's all in the language of, look, this is what you elected me to do, bring things back to my district and get things done for the American people. Do they survive? I don't know. But to me, you've made an important stand then that you'll be remembered for forever. It, you know, it, it's almost unprecedented. I wish that's what some of them would do, but it's looking today like that may not happen. Yeah. Well, and maybe it just gets worse because I right now they're not going to get Jim Jordan elected speaker and they shouldn't. I mean, in my humble opinion, when there have been a number of wrestlers who have complained and said that he didn't use his oversight for that program that he was running, there's some questions of why he should be the Speaker of the House for the Republicans. Did you know Jim Jordan? I did. Um, you know, he was a he was a fixture of the House Jim GYM in the mornings, which is like the one sort of holdout of relatively friendly relations among the two sides. And I, I always was in there as well. He liked to talk to me about, I guess when he was at Ohio State, he did a lot of recruiting for, of wrestlers in Pennsylvania. He knew my high school had this like wrestling tradition. So he would talk to me about that kind of stuff. But I mean, John Boehner himself referred to him as a legislative terrorist. You know, I, I don't know what else you need to know than that. And you know, from being in Washington, there are a lot of people who are there just to make headlines and issue press releases and not to pass any bills. And some of those people exist on the left. They've been there for decades. I mean, there. when I got there, there were people that had been there since before I was born. I don't know if that's still true, but they'll go decades without passing legislation of any consequence because they just stake out extreme positions. Um, and he's one of those. I don't think he has a single legislative achievement to his name that I know of. And I'm assuming he'll use this position mostly to try to impeach Biden. So he's, he's taken us into, into worse territory than we're already in, if that's possible. Well, and that's the real question. I mean, the stakes couldn't be higher. And we saw that in Israel being attacked by Hamas. Israel, of course, had had some division within their own government leading up to it. And that probably distracted the attention to the real vulnerabilities that they face and that we face, frankly. We know that there are countries around the world, you know, you are in the Marines, that there are countries and people around the world who want nothing more than to harm America and to take away the rights that we all, Republicans and Democrats, believe in, whether it's, you know, the right to just have freedom of religion, to have our kids have an opportunity at the American dream, to have freedom of speech, these things that are invaluable to us. There are plenty of people who want to undermine that. What would you say are the big vulnerabilities in the houses in action right now with us on the global stage? Right. I mean, I think the immediate one clearly has to do with Israel and, and Ukraine in combination because I forget how many days are left now, but we're in the 30 some days until the government shuts down again. It's sometime right after Thanksgiving. And when the government shuts down, the, the DOD continues operating, but it it's definitely comes at a great cost and they are weakened and it's a bad look to the entire world. And you got to figure that China or Iran or somebody, as this keeps happening to us, is it's going to clue into them like, oh, that's a that's a good time to make a move right there. Um, you know, this this country is divided and weak and confused. And if they do it the right way, they might even be able to convince the Republicans to to make their case in public the way the Russians did ever since 2016. I mean, the Russians have essentially been feeding the, the GOP their own talking points for the last seven years. So um, it's, it's a tremendous risk. And again, I just come back to the point that I made earlier, 
what we need to do right now is actually pretty minimal. I mean, I'm a Democrat. I believe in debating and passing bills and trying new things. But Biden had probably the most productive first two years uh, legislatively of anybody since LBJ, maybe. And, and that stuff is all law. And we, we mostly just need to keep the government open and funded so that those programs can all be enacted and, and get rolling and have the effect we want them to have in society. So we don't need to pass a lot of legislation in the next 14 months. So if we could just get a few people who you know, agree to some really basic things, we would avoid a lot of, of headaches and avoid putting ourselves in a very dangerous position. That's to keep stability, right? To like actually make progress on areas like immigration. If we do want to secure our border and make sure that we have the process in place for people to seek asylum, refugee status, whatever it is, and actually have a court date, we would need legislative reform, right? Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's no question that that that, that issue is going to require us to pass some new laws. I mean, you and I both know that that's an extremely difficult issue to touch even in normal times. So I don't know that, you know, I don't know that would form part of a, a compromise to avoid Jim Jordan being coming speaker right now. But but maybe it could. Um, you know, I traveled to the border with a lot of Republicans and we all pretty much came to the exact same conclusions. Nobody really disagreed about what it was that we should do. So it's one of those issues that everybody kind of knows in the back of their minds what should be done, but they don't want to talk about it that way to their constituents. What was it that needs to be done? Basically, as you alluded to this very briefly, the idea of sped up asylum court dates, just for your listeners that don't know how this works, people come to the border and they ask for asylum, which is their right under international law. They're allowed to do that. But the way the system works now is they should get a court date with an immigration judge who is not a normal judge. It's, this is like these little executive courts that they have. And a lot of times it takes years to get that court date. And so the people are released into the United States and they basically know that if they come here and do this, they're allowed to stay for X number of years. And a lot of times they're able to work during that time. So they come here knowing that almost all of the asylum cases, I, I want to say it's in the 70s or even 80s of percent, when they're finally adjudicated, the person doesn't qualify for asylum. The categories are just really narrow. It's usually like religious persecution, political persecution. And most of these people are just fleeing violent neighborhoods and violent families and violent situations, which your heart goes out to them, but the law doesn't make that a category. So we all pretty much concluded that if there was a way to just adjudicate it right there at the border, you know, before they're even released into the country or somewhere else. I mean, one of the members on that trip was saying that the, the government of Guatemala supposedly was offering to create an entrance point all the way down there where people would stay until we adjudicated their cases down there. And then the, the Mexican cartels would never get the opportunity to smuggle them across the country. So, you know, it, it very much is about speeding up these asylum claims, but that would require detaining people, which a lot of people on the left don't want to do. And it would require a lot of government spending to have more judges and lawyers and all that sort of thing, which a lot of people on the right don't want to do. But that's an interesting idea. I mean, essentially, we could have outposts around the United States. Now, one thing I've looked at, I mean, immigration, if you look at it over the long haul, has added to the economy, not subtracted from the economy. And there is an argument that right now with um, such low unemployment, there is a need for a certainly skilled positions as well. All of that would take Congress to act, <laughs> the House and the Senate, to pass some sort of legislation. Some people in Arizona say, why would it need to be some big package? Can't it be like little small chunks? What are the things that could be done? Because you're, you're saying, you know, you agree with Republicans, and yet we have nothing. Yeah, I mean, the, the best example of, of a small, tiny ray of hope has been 
the issue of farm workers specifically, where my former colleague Zoe Lofgren in, from California teamed up with some Republicans to actually push through a new idea on on a, a new number of visas for farm workers to come in and stay for longer and be legal. Most of the people in those programs do obey the law. So they come on their visa, they stay as long as they're allowed to stay, and then they go home and then they come back again the following year. And they really like it that way. They bring money home. It's good for their communities. The farms you know, are able to use them. So the idea has been if you could expand that to other sectors, you know, I was always hearing from like landscapers, people that are on the coast talk about seafood picking and packing. If you could ex- expand to those specific industries, it clearly would be, you know, a great advantage in this unemployment environment. And I also just say as somebody who's from a part of the country whose best economic days, you know, may have been a few decades ago, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, places in Pennsylvania that have received a lot of immigrants, they've mostly been Puerto Ricans and Dominicans who are here legally, they have completely revitalized towns that used to have steel mills or or other heavy industry and where everybody moved out of. And so it's that's actually been a great benefit to our state in a lot of ways. And it hasn't destroyed the culture. It hasn't changed who we are. It's just brought a lot of economic growth because these people are so industrious. Yeah. I mean, we've even seen that in Kansas. And yet, you know, right now, <laughs> Congress is enacting to make this feasible. You talked about going to the border with Republicans. Which Republicans were you with on that trip? It was a trip organized by the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a group in the House that has an equal number of D's and R's every session. Um, it was that term. It was led by Josh Gottheimer and Brian Fitzpatrick, who I talked about earlier. Um, and so it was all people in that group that went together. You know, there's maybe a dozen or so of us. And like I said, we mostly a lot of us had military or law enforcement backgrounds or both. And, and we saw the issue pretty clearly. It, it's funny. I, I just I still grapple with it. I don't know what the answer is, but it's a very weird experience to run for office in this environment because what you just said about compromising is what you actually hear from voters when you're out in public walking around your district. I mean, it's it's almost comical how often they they just tell you, you know, give up the partisanship, work with the other side, get things done. And they just say it over and over and over again. That's what they want. But then because of the way I think in particular social media has just kind of pounded these differences and created the, the distance between the two sides you almost never get any reward for actually doing what the voters want. So there's not, not much of a fundraising reward. There's not even that much of like a, a traditional news reward. I mean, Biden essentially did what all those voters asked him to do. I mean, infrastructure, CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, a million different things in those first two years. Every one of those signing ceremonies, you can go back and look and he's standing there with Mitt Romney um, and whoever else. But we all know what his numbers are today and the way Americans feel about the economy. They're not giving them that much credit for having been a bipartisan president that gets things done. Well, and they say that it's because of Biden's spending. But question, you know, I always have is we had more in PPP fraud that went out the door than we had at U- in Ukraine spending at one point, I think still. And yet, you know, for some reason, Trump walks away with his, you know, saying that he had no responsibility in this inflation. He literally paid people not to work. I mean, you could say Democrats participated in that because they did, because everyone was trying to keep from, you know, closing the economy to affect everyone. But that was what caused the inflation, right? <laughs> like Now we're, we're trying to invest in things that should over time, let's hope, bring down inflation. But that is, you know, it's not getting the messaging. I've got to think, you know, on that, like, because the voters want 
people who are finding consensus and moving it forward. If we did start talking about some of those Republicans more and like having more of those bipartisan conversations, could we normalize it to the point where, you know, people start to understand? Because this Trump era, I mean, I remember my son saying, just turn off the television. He didn't want to watch Trump's press conferences. Everybody was yelling at each other. It's just so toxic. Like, could we give them and the Democrats who are compromising enough oxygen that that would help? Or do you agree with starting the interview when we talked about, you know, you can't even talk about the Republicans who we would support because it could backfire on them? Is it really like, are we at that lost cause? Yeah, I, I don't, I, I never call it a lost cause. You know, when I was in the problem solvers, I always explained it to my voters at home that I was trying to light a candle rather than curse the darkness, which I think was Eleanor Roosevelt saying, um, you know, at least it was something small where we would get together. And that group actually was pretty influential in getting some of the COVID legislation done under Trump uh, that was bipartisan. But, you know, I think it's mostly a question of the media and social media ecosystem. And so I appreciate what you're trying to do at News Nation and, and other people are, are doing their best to make an impact in it. But there's something about these technologies that just appeal to the very tribal parts of people's minds and make it hard for people to see successful legislating when they come across it. I mean, you can do a search on Twitter or something for problem solvers or for Joe Manchin, who's always talking about this kind of stuff. And people are just hating on them all the time. I mean, it's, you know, and I, I get it. The Twitter's not real life, yeah. but but reporters are very influenced by that. That was what I learned as a new candidate is, you know, reporters basically look your stuff up on Twitter before they interview you. A lot of times you can predict, you know, what they're going to ask by, by what's about you on Twitter, because that's what they're allowing to influence them. So it has cascading effects all throughout the system. Yeah, no, you're right. So what's next for you? Uh, right now I'm, I'm practicing law and being a dad. So if anyone can tell in my voice, I... I've got a little bit of a fever because my two-year-old and one-year-old are sick all the time and they get us sick. But my wife and I are just having a, a great time doing all the things we couldn't do when, when I was in, spending a lot of times with my kids. And I work for a, a plaintiff side civil law firm. So it's great because I represent um, victims of, of college hazing, rape. I do some environmental cases against polluters and that sort of thing. So you, you feel like you're still on the good side. I also teach a, a course about democracy at Duquesne Law School, which is here in Pittsburgh. So it's a good place to be. Um, I would love to get back into politics or, or public service in some way, but haven't figured out the right path yet. Well, I am really grateful. The one thing Hakeem and I have talked about is now the Republicans are starting to blame the Democrats for ousting Kevin McCarthy, which is just kind of laughable because this is what is standard practice that you vote for your leader. And there's no way the Republicans would have saved Nancy Pelosi had she been vulnerable. But there is some sort of a bipartisan consensus that could come around. Yeah, they were supposed to maybe have a floor vote on on Jordan today. I would watch that and see, you know, what these moderates do. I will say I should have mentioned earlier, I mean, everyone forgets this now because of January 6th, but three days before January 6th, Nancy Pelosi had a very hard time getting her votes to be speaker again because our majority was so small. Myself and another member, uh, Jared Golden, were going to vote against her. We had told our constituents we were going to do that. We both did that in 2018. And so the pressure is enormous when you're in that situation. And I had some very high profile people calling my personal cell phone, trying to talk me out of it. I know Jared did as well. And some of the other members who were in our camp, you know, ended up flipping to support her. I can really, you know, understand the position that they find themselves in. I just think that 
you know, as I look back now that I'm out, you really want to feel like you stood up for what you thought was right. And you want the history books, I think, to reflect, you know, I think about my son who's too young now to understand what I did, but I, I want him to look at my career and feel proud of some things that I did. And, and I think if a few of these members did the right thing right now, and even if they didn't support a Democrat, if they just arranged some sort of power sharing agreement that kept Jordan out of the speaker's chair, um, I think they could be proud of that for, for many generations in their family, even if they don't get reelected. Well, I am really grateful, Connor, for your time, and I am looking forward to everything that you're going to do in politics moving forward, and I look forward to staying in touch. I really appreciate all of you who stuck around. Our motto for the Iowa campaign for President Obama was respect, empower, include. And gosh, I think we could get back to that in politics. That is exactly what I want to do on Press Advance. And I'd love to have the audience involved. So if you're listening to this, please find me on social media at Johanna Masca. Send me what you think and let me know if I should read it on the podcast. Please follow us, rate and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.